When I was younger, the idea of growing up was particularly alluring to me. Because growing up meant getting bigger, it meant getting stronger, it meant gaining autonomy, responsibility, freedom to make my own choices, being able to go places on my own, have relationships on my own, not being entirely dependent on my parents. Um, Growing up also meant eventually maybe even getting uh, big and strong enough to finally get my brother back for all the ridiculous garbage that he did to me when I was little. And what essentially happened was that idea of someday when I'm bigger, someday when I grow up, it became a, an, almost like an escape for me, like looking forward to this daydream to eventually, in those better days, I wanted to get away from where I was now. It was a, a promise to my parents, eventually you won't have to take care of me anymore, you won't have to worry about me anymore. And in my mind, I never expressed this to him because that would have resulted in my pain, but in my mind, it was also a threat to my brother that when I get big and strong, I'll be able to get you back. That still has not happened to this day, but there's still time. Um, <laughs> but now that I'm older, I have all of these things that I once so desperately longed for. Right? I have responsibility. I have freedom. Um, I have the ability to make my own choices, to care about myself, take care of myself. Uh, But what I've realized is there's a great deal of responsibility that accompanies growing up and all those desires that I had. And there's a part of me, if I'm honest, that still longs for that blissful ignorance of my immature, younger self. I've found that growing up, getting bigger, and becoming mature takes on a a far different uh, appearance than what I had imagined. So, The same is true when we consider the idea of pursuing spiritual growth and maturity. As we dig deeper into this passage from Ephesians today, my hope is that uh, we will allow any assumptions or presuppositions that we have about maturity to be challenged and, if needed, to be reshaped by God's Spirit through God's Word, uh, and that ultimately we would adopt God's definition of maturity and His vision of maturity for ourselves. So let's pray before we continue. God, thank you for this time here this morning. God, I pray that you would, um, through me and through your Spirit, say what you want me to say. God, I pray that each one of us would hear what you would have us to hear. God, give us um, humility to accept anything that we need to change and an excitement to see, God, the work that you're doing in us. We pray in your name. Amen. So we'll be talking about God's vision of maturity, but before we can really continue into that, we need to make sure we're on the same page in terms of our definition of maturity. So what is maturity? Now, our secular culture and both the church world, both of those are not lacking for definitions of maturity. Uh, In the secular world, maturity might be defined by some as tolerance, right? Being so comfortable and confident in your own beliefs uh, that you're able to stand in that and just be yourself in spite of you know, what anybody else believes, and even being okay with somebody else disagreeing with you and landing on a different place. Um, others in our culture might define maturity as independence, or self-love, I can take care of myself, or perhaps autonomy, relying only on myself, I don't need anyone else around me. And, and, and essentially what our culture would tell you is that maturity is this idea of ascending beyond, ascending beyond silly religion, Ascending beyond the humiliating nature of depending on someone else. I can take care of myself. I don't need anyone else. That's, to a certain degree, what our culture would say maturity is. Now, 
In the church, we also have a number of other ways in which we try to define and sometimes even evaluate our maturity. You know, one thing we do is we kind of evaluate our spiritual disciplines. Okay, if I'm mature, then I'm reading my Bible this many times a week and praying this many times a week, and I'm fasting this often, I'm doing all these things, I go to church, I serve, right? We look at these spiritual disciplines as a way to evaluate our maturity. Some of us keep moral lists, and that's going like, well, I used to swear this much, and now I only swear this much, therefore I am mature. Some of us like to rest our laurels on our theological knowledge, right? And so if you understand words like, um, total depravity, or you understand soteriology, or the hypostatic union, you can look those up later, um, then it's going to be really easy for you, as it is for me and lots of us, to, to try to base our sense of maturity on our theological knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong, those three things, the spiritual disciplines, moralist, theological knowledge, those are all really commendable things. Um, and we, we should want to regularly be in God's Word and regularly spend time in prayer. It's good to kind of keep a moral list of living in a way that's like, okay, is this how God has designed me to live? It's good to have a deep, robust theological knowledge. It's just that if, if these are the primary means by which our maturity is determined, then we aren't getting the whole picture that Paul is painting of maturity for the Ephesian church. Now, there's a sneaky thing that's on the bottom of this, uh, bottom of this list called comparison. And this is something we don't know that we're doing it, but this is the other way um, that we are tempted to think that we're mature. It's like, I don't actually care how much Bible I read or how little I swear or how much theological knowledge I have, but it's more of, as long as I read my Bible more than that guy, as long as I swear less than that girl, as long as I have more biblical knowledge than that person, then I can feel mature without having to do any extra work. Right, so these are all ways that we try to define and evaluate maturity. But again, Paul paints us a different picture. So what is maturity biblically? It's a major theme in each of Paul's epistles. Epistles are letters that Paul writes to different churches. And four of them are clumped right there together in the middle of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And I'm not going to go into each one of these. Uh, you can look those up on your own time. But, but Paul paints this huge picture of maturity in this theme through his book. So fruit of the Spirit... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Pursuing reconciliation and unity. Luke preached about this a few weeks ago in, in Ephesians 2. Um, submitting my desires and my will to what God desires and wills for me. Steadfastness, standing firm in, in times of trial and suffering. Selflessness, putting the needs of others and their concerns above my own. Dependence on God and on others. These are all ways in which Paul paints this massive picture of maturity. And I'll be honest, I, I tried to write a, one, a simple kind of catchy one-sentence deal that would define maturity in the hopes that, you know, you would be able to write that down. It'd be sticky. You'd quote me on Facebook, and I'd get all sorts of credit. But I couldn't do it. It was an exercise in futility because God's definition and God's vision of maturity is so far beyond the scope of what we imagine. So it was impossible for me to encapsulate into to one simple phrase. And I think part of the reason it's so difficult to do that is because we don't truly understand who maturity is for. Now think about it. When I bring up the word of the, the idea and the concept of maturity, my bet would be that most of us in this room immediately begin to think of it through an individual or a personal lens. My growth, my wisdom, my intelligence, my knowledge, my responsibility, my freedoms. 
my choices. We think of it through an individual and a personal lens. I, I hate to break it to you, but as, as Rick Warren so succinctly put at the very beginning of his book, Purpose Driven Life, it's not about you. Your maturity is not about you. My maturity is not for me. The, the list that I just gave you of all the ways that Paul talked about maturity through his epistles, how many of those are impossible to do on your own? Right? You can't be selfless on your own. You can't be dependent on God and others on your own. Right? You can't pursue reconciliation and unity by yourself. It's not about you. Maturity, our maturity, our spiritual growth is about more than just me and my relationship with God. So look with me again at this passage from Ephesians 4. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16 again. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Nowhere in this passage does Paul talk about an individual person. He says, we are to grow. The whole body, every joint working collectively together, each part working properly, makes the whole body grow. It's not about you. Maturity is not about me. Rather, our maturity is primarily for the benefit of the church body as a whole and for the demonstration of God's glory. Now, God's expectation of us as individual people within the body of Christ is that we grow up. Right? And the connotation here when Paul says this isn't grow up like you'd yell at your teenage son when he laughs at an inappropriate joke about a body part. Right? This is not, oh, grow up, what's wrong? This is, hey, we need to grow up. It's this idea of uh, almost like a child growing from infancy to adulthood. Right? So there are stages and seasons of this. You have infant to toddler to child to preteen to adolescent to teenager and on and on into adulthood. It's a slow process. Growing up is a slow process. It takes years. It requires patience with ourselves. It requires patience with those around us. And it's a natural progression of wisdom, of maturity, self-awareness, and, and even things like understanding how interpersonal relationships work. And Paul says, hey, together and individually, we need to grow up. But he doesn't just stop at saying, hey, guys, let's, let's grow up. Let's move towards adulthood. Let's move towards maturity. He adds to it. He says, not just grow up, but grow up in, in every way. And when he says every way, what he's literally saying is every way. This choice of words is not coincidental because there's no area of our lives in which the call to grow up does not apply. One of the phrases that you'll hear on a regular basis here at Redemption Gateway is all of life is all for Jesus. And what we mean by that is what Paul is talking about here. In every way, in all things, in every area and aspect of our lives, work, parenting, managing resources and finances, recreation, vacation, spiritual disciplines, you know, even things like eating and sleeping habits and rhythms and exercise, every single one of these arenas presents us continual opportunities for growth and maturity. And every one of these areas matter because Jesus is Lord over every one of these areas. And everyone presents us an opportunity to grow in every way 
And the next phrase in here is, into him. See, Paul keeps raising the stakes here. He doesn't say, grow up in every way. He says, grow up in every way into him. He creates this, this model of expectation. And what he means by this is our, ultimately our call to maturity is a call to look like Jesus. Well, if that's the standard, then every single one of us in this room would have to readily admit that we would rightly be called immature. Right? No one matches up to the standard of Jesus. Paul goes, hey, grow up in every way into him. Grow up into Jesus. You should look and act and be like Jesus to the people around you. That's a weighty thing to feel, but thankfully, this isn't the only place where Paul talks about this idea. Elsewhere in Romans 8, 28 through 30, uh, Paul lays out this, this concept that the, the part of God's sovereign work in our lives is that he uses everything that happens to us to build into us and over time conform us to the image of Christ. What this means is that what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, which is, grow up in every way into Christ, look like Jesus. He goes, and by the way, you're not on your own trying to figure out how to make that happen. God is actively participating in that work, working in you exactly what he has called you to do. He doesn't leave us alone to figure this out on our own. But then Paul makes a transition in here to really focus on the idea that the primary beneficiary of our maturity, of our growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, the primary beneficiary of our maturity is not the individual person, but the church body as a whole. It says in, in verse 16, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So a couple observations here. First of all, the body, and just as an aside, I don't know how many of you might not have been here when Luke uh, talked about this at the beginning of Ephesians. When you see the word body, this is uh, just kind of a biblical way that they talk about the body of Christ or the church. So we say the body, we're talking about the church. The church body comes from and is defined by Jesus. He says that Christ the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. So the body comes from and is defined by Jesus. Now, if this is true, if Jesus is the one who, from whom the body is derived and defined, then we, as part of the body, we, as part of the created order of what Jesus has put in place, we don't have the right to demand that the body look a certain way. We don't have the right to say, I wish... These kinds of people weren't here. I wish the church was more like this. I wish it did this kind of music. I, you know, oh man, if it, would, it would be such a better church if it had this kind of preaching or if it had this kind of people on staff. We don't have the right to demand what the body of Christ looks like. Now, I'm not, to be perfectly clear, I'm not talking about theological and doctrinal accuracy. Like there are baselines of scripture. Here's what is true. And we're gonna absolutely demand that the church body is in line with the teachings of Christ. When we get to matters of preferences, because Jesus is the author, Jesus is the one who defines the body, we do not have the right to demand what his body looks like. And in reality, when we are demanding, hey, it needs to be like this, it needs to be like this, what we're essentially saying is, I don't love the people that are here. I wish they were gone. I wish we had different people. It's a dangerous place to sit. 
second observation about this verse is that Jesus has already done the equipping. The language here is important. The verb tense is important. He says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Jesus has already done the equipping. Everything that this church body needs for this season that it's in, in this time in history, this church has already been equipped. It is equipped. We're not waiting on further equipping. The church is equipped to do what God has called it to do. Here's what this means for you. This is, I hope, really encouraging. What this means for you is that if you call Redemption Gateway your church home, if this is, when you think about, man, my home, what the church I want to go to, this is the place you call home. What that means is, Jesus sent you here. Jesus sent you here. Your presence here is not a coincidence. You are not here because you drove by on Pecos and you saw the sign. You're like, hey, that's a weird building in a warehouse. You are not here because you Googled us on the internet. That might have been some of how you found out about us. You're not even here because somebody invited you. If this is your church home, you are here because God sent you here You are part of his equipping process for this body, for what it needs right now. This connects really well. Seth was talking about this last week. It's like, what if each one of us viewed ourselves in a healthy way as God's gift to the church? And if this is true, my hope then would be for each one of you, especially if you're not sure, what am I here for? What do I have to offer? What role do I have to play in this? You'd begin asking those questions, seeking ways to get connected, get involved, and be a part of the body building itself up because Jesus sent you here for that reason. The third observation is that when the equipped parts of the body function properly in their roles, the body builds and strengthens itself up. You know, some of you may be sports fans. Um, There's a baseball player for the Angels. His name is Mike Trout. Um, and if, for anybody that doesn't know baseball, just know he's like the greatest baseball player since Babe Ruth. I'll take your complaints later. Okay, so, so Mike Trout, he's like the perfect sp- physical specimen, right? He can hit a ball 450 feet. He can throw a ball 100 miles an hour. He can scale the, you know, center field wall to, you know, uh, rob home runs. He runs around the bases really fast. He's the epitome of a five-tool player. There's nothing he can't do. It's what he's designed and equipped to do until... You get a Liz Franck injury, which is an issue with the tendon that connects the whatever part of that foot to the other part of your foot. I'm not an anatomy person, right? I probably even mispronounced Liz Franck. But if you have an issue with that tendon in your foot, I don't know if you've ever had this, it's incredibly painful. Every step you take feels like you're walking on burning coals and having needles shoved into your foot. It's terrible. And here's this perfect specimen of a man playing baseball, tendon issue in his foot. He can still swing a bat, but the ball goes about 50 feet. He can still throw a ball, but he can't plant enough to get any power and authority behind that throw. Because one part of his body isn't functioning properly, the hole is not healthy. The hole is thrown off. You know, for any of you that might be into music, guitars, you know, instruments sort of thing, imagine a Fender guitar, a beautiful brand new Fender guitar. You got these, you know, everything's tuned right and the bridge is the way it's supposed to be and the strings are the right height off of the neck and all that kind of stuff. And then one of your strings breaks and you go to Walmart and you buy a set of first act guitar strings and you replace one of the strings on your Fender with this 
really cheapo guitar string. Now, technically, if you tune the guitar and tune the string, it will technically play the right note, but it won't feel the same. The tone will not be anywhere near as beautiful as it's supposed to be. One part is not functioning the way it's supposed to, and it throws off the whole. Right, so when the equipped parts function properly in their roles, the body builds and strengthens. When they're not functioning properly, the body is weakened. But think about the opposite of these illustrations. When Mike Trout's ankle and his, his foot is healed, he's now restored, his body working perfectly to again regain the title of best player in baseball. When the, you get the right strings back on that guitar, there's just a sense of relief when you strum it for the first time and you hear this beautiful melodious sound the way it was designed to be because the parts are functioning properly. It's the same way in the church. When the parts are functioning properly, it strengthens the whole. The last observation from this passage is that both the physical body and the church body are created healthy but not mature. Here's what I mean by this. If you, you know, have a, a baby, brand new baby, you can have a healthy baby, right? That baby's not mature. Baby's not going on the potty by itself. Like, you're still changing diapers. You have a three-year-old. I have a three-year-old daughter. She's healthy. She's saying all the words she's supposed to say, right? She's recognizing letters and numbers. But, like, I can't have a conversation about politics with her. She can't even explain to me why she does some of the things she does and says what she says because she's not mature. She hasn't developed that way. But she's healthy, and so when we're talking about, you know, the church body being created healthy but not mature, it's the same way. You know, this church has been here for about 10 years, and 10 years ago, we were a healthy church. And what we needed 10 years ago is different than what we needed five years ago. Five years ago, we were a healthy church. Fast forward to now, we're still healthy. But what we need now is different than what we needed five years ago, 10 years ago. What the church body needs to continue growing changes over time based on the season that it's in. In every one of those seasons, Jesus equips the church with the people and the skills that that church needs for that moment to build itself up in love. That begs the question, how? How do we make this happen? How do we grow up into maturity? How do we you know, move from this season into the next that God has called us? How do we adapt? How do we change? How do we move towards this vision of maturity that God has laid out? And Paul gives the answer at the very beginning of verse 15, where he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. So the means by which we grow up and move towards maturity is speaking the truth in love to one another. The implication of this is that maturity cannot happen in isolation. Can't happen in isolation. That's not the way that we were designed to be. We were designed to depend on each other and depend on God. Therefore, the idea of just me and Jesus doesn't fly. Uh, this may not be accurate, but I, I feel like my generation is particularly responsible for this movement of... Um, I, I don't need organized religion. I don't need the church. I just need, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, do you need a personal relationship with Jesus? Yes, that is crucial. You need that. But a relationship with Jesus, we need to understand, comes with strings attached. And what I mean by that is Jesus 
the groom, has a bride, and his bride is the church. We cannot grow up in every way into Jesus. We cannot move into maturity by excluding part of who he is, which is married to his bride, the church. We cannot grow, we cannot move towards maturity in isolation. It's not the way we were designed to be. We need to have people around us in order to be able to speak truth and love to each other. But there's some tension here because we all know somebody that likes to lob what I call truth grenades. Right? So this is the guy that's kind of like hunting around just waiting for somebody to say something that's wrong, something he doesn't like, and then as soon as he hears it, he goes, ha, pull the pin, throw in whatever, you know, correction and just oh yeah boom truth and then he walks away right and and is completely unaware of the devastation and the destruction left in the wake of his truth grenade now was what he said true maybe the message could have been true but the method by which it was delivered was incredibly harmful now i would imagine many of you can even think of particular instances when somebody lobbed a truth grenade in your direction. And if you've never experienced that, what that means is probably then that you were the one throwing the truth grenades. So there's this tension. We speak the truth in love, but oh, message, method, what's the, you know, what's the the connection between those two? Um, If you want to dive into this topic further, a resource that I would highly recommend is Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Just outstanding resource, really kind of drawing out this whole uh, concept that Paul's talking about. But I want to focus on five particular ways that we are called to speak the truth in love to one another for the purpose of building the body up to maturity. The first is instruction. And I mean instruction basic christian principles the basic foundational knowledge who is god who is jesus how am i saved how do i read the bible how should i pray like all of these sorts of things basic instruction of what's true about the world that i live in what's true about god how i relate to him and my experience has been that we sometimes are hesitant to bring instruction and i think a lot of that is We've adopted some of our culture's emphasis on self-determination. Right, you, you need to figure this out for yourself. That's going to help you achieve that autonomy sooner, you know, the culture's definition of maturity. And, and it makes me really sad. There's a number of, of parents that I've come into contact with, even Christian parents, that have gone with their young children. Well, I don't want to make my child come to church. I don't want to bring him to church because I, I want them to to want to come, and I want them to learn this on their own and, you know, have a faith that's their own. And I get, I get the heart and the desire behind that, wanting your child to really make faith their own. But there's a reality in which there is right and there is wrong. And we are doing ourselves a disservice if we don't instruct as to what is right. If you're a new believer, or maybe you're not even sure you're a Christian, but you're kind of curious about all this sort of stuff, and you want some instruction on basic Christian principles, we actually have a a ministry here called Fundamentals of the Faith, where we will partner you up with a mature Christian mentor who will walk you through uh, some of these issues that you would have questions about. If that's something you're interested in or you think might be beneficial for you, you'd fill that out on the connection card and drop that off when you leave. It'll be a really great experience for you. Uh, The second way that we have an opportunity to speak the truth and love to one another is through encouragement. 
And specifically, when I say encouragement, I'm talking about uh, reaching out to and encouraging people who are suffering, who are faint-hearted, who are weak, just got a cancer diagnosis, death in the family, difficult family struggles, you know, single mom, working three jobs, struggling to make ends meet. These are faint-hearted and weary and suffering and weak people. And we sometimes are hesitant to move towards encouraging them because we feel awkward. Right? It's uncomfortable to step into someone else's discomfort. It's painful to step into and feel someone else's pain. And so we hesitate and draw back from it. Or what we'll do is we'll lob a truth grenade. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. I'm sorry you're going through this horrible thing. By the way, if I ever hear anybody do that, you and I are going to have to have words because that's not helpful. It's true. God does work all things together for good, but it's not helpful in that moment when someone is hurting. Look at Jesus in John 11. You have Mary and Martha. They're, they're just devastated at the loss of their brother Lazarus. Jesus shows up, right? Now, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows the end. He doesn't come in and go, hey, guys, guys, stop crying, okay? Stop it. I'm the Son of God. I'm the resurrection and the life. You know how the story ends. Suck it up. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He says nothing. He walks up. I'm adding a little bit to the story because it doesn't say, but I imagine him just wrapping his arms around them. And then John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus speaking the truth in love to Mary and Martha in that moment did not involve words. It involved moving towards them and just hurting and experiencing their pain and weeping with them. And we have tremendous opportunity to encourage people in our lives the same way by imaging the presence and the empathy of Jesus hurting with people. And yes, there are times to, for words. There is a time to speak and encourage people through Scripture with the truth of God's character, with reminders of His promises and His faithfulness. But there are also times to encourage people by pointing them to the Psalms and say, hey, look at David and Asaph and all these other guys complaining to God and expressing their pain and frustration. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to, to cry out to God. And we can encourage people and speak truth and love in that way. Third way is through exhortation. This is a little bit different than encouragement. I, I think about exhortation like the coach's locker room speech, you know, right before the game. Guys, this is what we've been, you know, practicing for and playing for. Every moment we've gone led up to this. All your hard work, all your blood, sweat, and tears, all your practice. You can do it. You know what to do. And you go in and, you know, go play the first half. And then you come out of the first half. You go into halftime and you're you know, two scores down. And then you have the speech again. Guys, I know it feels like we're behind Technically, we are because we're down two scores, but you know what to do. You know the game plan. Here's this adjustment we're going to make. You have all the skills you need. You have all the experience you need. You can do this. That's, in my mind, a picture of, of exhortation. It's this motivation towards continued obedience, towards continuing on in what you already know how to do. I think we hesitate sometimes to exhort people because we get complacent. There's no like imminent danger, imminent need. Eh, things are going pretty smoothly. And so, because we don't feel the need for that ourselves, we then don't move towards and speak exhortation to other people. But there's an incredible value in doing so because it's a proactive defense of yourself and other people. And in Hebrews 3, it says, Exhort one another every day so that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhortation is reminding someone, this is who you are in Christ. This is... This is the grace and the forgiveness that you've received. This is what God has called you to. God's spirit is moving and working within you. 
Hearing those words over and over again, being exhorted in those, strengthens you to continue moving towards obedience and even is a proactive defense against the danger of sin and temptation. Fourth way we speak truth and love to each other is through correction. And I'm thinking here in correction specifically of like potentially uh, wrong and potentially dangerous thinking. Here's an example of this. In the counseling room, one of the phrases I hear a lot is, I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. And I, I understand what's being said in that moment. That's so dangerous. That's so dangerous. And, and here's why. Here's what, here's what correction looks like for that person. No, 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 no. You don't need to forgive yourself. Right? You, you don't need to forgive yourself. You've already been forgiven by God, which you acknowledge. I know God has forgiven me. Here's what you need to understand. God's standard is ultimate, and he's already forgiven you. If you're saying, I can't forgive myself, you're placing your standard above God's and saying that Jesus' death, his sacrifice, his forgiveness, his graces is insufficient for you. And somehow, your view of yourself is more important than God's. No, you need to, you need to lay that down, and you need to rest and the forgiveness that Jesus has provided for you through his life, death, and resurrection. Rest there. That's a loving correction for dangerous thinking. And I think we hesitate to move towards people and correct people, sometimes just because we're not sure what we believe ourselves. I don't want to be hypocritical and tell somebody and to do something that I'm, I don't know how to do or I'm not doing myself. And there's a wise flinch in that to kind of do a self-check and make sure that I'm living out what I'm instructing somebody else in, but we're called to correction. The fifth way we speak the truth and love to each other is through rebuke. This is everybody's least favorite one, well, most people's least favorite one. Some people like rebuking a little bit too much. Those are usually the people who like to throw truth grenades. But the, the purpose of rebuke is to find, not to find somebody, but to see somebody who is in sin and lovingly call them to repentance, to lay that sin down and pursue following Jesus. Now, we hesitate to rebuke people I think primarily because, one, we're scared of conflict. Not very many people like conflict. And two, we don't want to lose relationship. Right? I love you so much, and I love the, your presence in my life, that I don't want to give that up, uh, and I'm scared if I say something you don't like that it's going to fracture our relationship. It's out of love. Here's a Paul Tripp quote that'll be interesting to look at. It says, we go so far as to convince ourselves that we are not speaking because we love the other person, when in reality we fail to speak because we lack love. That's it for a minute. To not rebuke is to not love. Now, I'm not saying be that guy that looks around, walks around looking for every possible way to rebuke somebody, but when you see it, it is unloving to let it go by without calling a person to repentance. It's the Spirit's job to convict, yes, but sometimes the Spirit's job to convict is done through you and through me speaking words of truth and love to somebody else. Here's the thing. In most circumstances, we can't accurately speak the truth and love to people unless we have a relationship with them. How will you know what instruction, encouragement, exhortation, correction, rebuke to give unless you know the person's story in their life? Our student ministry is a purpose statement, which is know, love, and center. Know every student, know their story, love them where they are, where they're at in the midst of their struggles. And as trust and equity gets built up over time, center them on Jesus. And every parent that I talk to in this, in this church is really excited about that for their kids. 
Oh, my kids need somebody to know and love and center them. Yes, I'm so excited our church has that. And yet, it seems like a lot of our adults, myself included, seem to think that we outgrow that need ourselves. Maybe it's the busyness of life, pride, thinking I've matured to a certain point, I don't need this anymore. But in order for the body of Christ to build itself up to maturity in love, we need to individually speak the truth in love to each other. In order for us to be able to do that, in order for us to speak the truth in love to each other, we need to know other people, and we need other people to know us. Each one of us, I'm convinced, needs multiple people in our lives that knows the real us, that has permission to ask difficult questions, that has the, the permission to, to just be around and poke and prod and correct. People who can see us in context where we aren't able to manipulate the narrative and control how we're perceived. And if we understand from this passage that our maturity is not just for us individually, but for the benefit of the whole body, then we need to realize that if we don't have these speaking the truth and love relationships in our lives, we're not only hurting ourselves, but also depriving the rest of the church body of what it needs to grow. How do we learn to do this? One is reps. You do it, and then when you mess up, you apologize to the person you mess up to, and you keep doing it. Like, there's nothing you can replace with repetition. But the other way we learn how to speak the truth in love is simply by looking and beholding, looking at and beholding Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See the way that, that Jesus, who John de, uh, defines as being sent in both grace and truth, watch him interact with people, call sinners to repentance, cry with people who are hurting, bring healing and forgiveness and hope. There's no formula that he follows, but his beauty jumps off the pages of Scripture. And you learn from Jesus how to speak the truth in love. Now, if you do have these relationships in your life, small groups, Bible studies, whatever it looks like, this is an exhortation. Don't let them go. Whatever you have to do to keep that in your life, keep it. It is absolutely worth whatever other sacrifice you have to make. What happens is I get busy, I have kids, I have a job, you know, extra responsibilities, more kids, extra job, more kids, third job. Right? We have all these things, and now our kids are all in all these extracurricular activities. We're driving all over the place. Well, I'm going to give up this group for now. I'm going to give up the small group. I'm going to give up this relationship I have. And I'll come back to it later when things cool down. But then things don't cool down. And weeks become months and months become years. The return to normal never happens. And then you feel dry spiritually. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are very likely experiencing that right now. And what you need is community. You need relationship. You need people in your life who will speak truth and love to you and to whom you can return the favor. So do whatever it takes to get back into those relationships, into those environments where those people will be around you because you cannot fully be who God has designed you to be in isolation outside of the context of the church body. And the church body cannot fully be what God has designed it to be without you being and doing what God has uniquely designed and equipped you to be and do. Now, don't make too much of yourself. You're not that important. Neither am I. Right, there's a finger in the jello. You put your finger in the jello and pull it out, and the jello maintains the same forward look. God is building his church. He's doing the work. Right? And if you and I fail, it's not going to thwart his plan. But there is a significant life-giving reality 
and a purpose-giving reality that we all have crucial roles to play in the plan of God to build his church up in love. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the way that you have loved us. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be a part of the work that you are doing. God, through your word, would you speak the truth and love to us? God, help us to see what you are calling us to and the ways you call us to do that in others' lives. We pray in your name. Amen.